Alongside mermaids, unicorns have enjoyed something of a resurgence of popularity in recent times. But what about the mythological creature that sits behind this particular trend and craze for all things sparkly and covered in rainbows? Let's find out in this week's episode of Fabulous Folklore. Hello there and welcome to Fabulous Folklore, the podcast for all things folklore, occult and just a bit weird. I'm your host, Icy Sedgwick, blogger, fantasy author and your guide into these rather mysterious realms. I've got some rare things to show you, so come on in, take a look around, but be careful not to touch anything. These things sometimes bite. Well, hello there and welcome back to Fabulous Folklore with me, your host, Icy Sedgwick. I do hope that you're well and that whatever you're doing and wherever you are, you are indeed safe, particularly in the current times of ours. And yeah, I'm just as a total side issue, I was really quite annoyed the other day because I got an email off a wool shop that I subscribed to their updates for with this subject line. It's Christmas. No, no, it's not. It is mid-September and we haven't even had Halloween yet. Speaking of which, because it is, of course, my favourite time of the year, I don't think that will surprise you one iota. We are going to have a sort of spooky and autumnal month in October, I think. So we are going to be looking at various bits of autumnal folklore and all things kind of weird and spooky and things like that. Incidentally, before I forget, because otherwise I will, the exclusive episode, if you're a Patreon supporter at the $4 a month or more mark, is going to be The Highgate Vampire, which was a request from one of my Patreon supporters, the wonderful Kaz, who is one of my favourite people, and I'm going to be doing that. So if you are interested in The Highgate Vampire and all of the previous exclusive episodes, and there's like 10 of them now or something, then obviously you can get that as a Patreon supporter. But on to this week's episode. Obviously, so far as part of our Mythological Creatures Month, we've looked at griffins at the start of the month, and I do think that they're quite awesome. I should point out, I have actually since had an email about this, just to remind everybody, because I didn't really make it that clear, that the theory that people think griffins came from these dinosaur fossils is just that, it's just a theory. There isn't actually much archaeological evidence to back that one up. It is just a theory. And then obviously we went on to dragons or the worm story for last week. And obviously people have been tweeting me about stories of dragons in their areas. One of these days I might actually collect them all and look into it properly. But that time is not now because I've got another folklore book on the cards, which I am currently in the planning stages for. And that's going to be all around like death folklore and stuff like that. Because let's be honest, like you know, what would you expect from your favourite folklore loving goth? But back to this week's episode, we're looking at unicorns and unicorns. They've got a bit of a strange position in popular culture because in fantasy narratives, we often see them as these pure noble animals who save the hero in their darkest hour. And if you think of things like Stardust or even the Harry Potter franchise, again, you've got unicorns in both of these and they're seen as these really pure animals. And there was even this really bizarre trend for them quite recently in the beauty industry. So you saw unicorns splashed across makeup lines that had like really holographic colours or brushes shaped like spiral horns and things like that. And it was all very odd and it seemed a bit of a strange direction to go in. But, you know, some of the colours were quite cool. And obviously unicorns are a perennial favourite with children. I'm pretty convinced when I was little I did have a My Little Pony unicorn, but I cannot remember what it was called. So if you can remember, please do let me know. But Beyond the Glitter and Rainbows does stand a somewhat spiritual creature, which is at times both gentle and ferocious, mysterious and medieval. 
And like the dragons and the griffins that we've already done in the last couple of weeks, you will find unicorns aplenty on coats of arms and family crests. Incidentally, the unicorn is even Scotland's national animal. But where do they come from and is there any possibility that they ever actually existed? Well, that is what we are going to find out in this week's episode. Now, we have to go back to around about 398 BC to find the first real records of unicorns. And this was courtesy of the Greek physician Tessias. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, but it's because I've never actually heard it said aloud. Now, he was writing about these while he was based in Persia, although his tales were actually about the unicorns of India. Now, we do need to pay attention to the fact that he'd never actually been to India himself. He was gathering tales from travellers who had been to India. And he also wrote about dog-headed men and griffins as well. And as Chris Lavers points out, the tales are so fantastical, we have two options in believing them or not believing them. And that is the case that he's either a fantastical liar or he was just writing down the stories that people were telling him, which could make him just gullible instead. Now, Tessias tells us that the unicorn has a white body, a dark red head, dark blue eyes and a white crimson and black horn, which is a little bit of a strange combination of things to put together. But there you go. And for Elmer G. Sir, this description can actually be equated to a solar eclipse with its black shadow, white corona and red bits that kind of stick out. And this could explain why the unicorn then got associated with the moon if it was actually more of a a metaphorical way of describing the eclipse. He does also say the moon's association with the virgin goddess Artemis is explaining the unicorn's preference for virgins, but we'll come back to that bit later on. Now, the Persians, the Greeks and Pliny the Elder all argued for the existence of the unicorn in India, but Julius Caesar actually then decided that it lived in Celtic forests instead. Now, Pliny the Elder described the unicorn as having the body of a horse, the head of a stag, the feet of an elephant, the tail of a boar, and a three-foot-long black horn. And I do think that if you saw one of those kind of things, it would kind of stick in your mind. Now, Matt Simon notes that an Indian rhinoceros also has feet and tail to match this description, so you do have to wonder, was the original prototype unicorn actually a rhinoceros? But of course, when we move into the 12th century, the bestiaries all ditch Pliny's hybrid model. And they then describe the unicorn as being very small. And they kind of put the size of it as being around about that of a a goat's kid, which is obviously a lot smaller. And this description clearly didn't stick because that's not the description that we work from now, basically. And a famous example of Middle Ages weaving essentially gives us the prototype for what we think of a unicorn now. And that's the unicorn tapestries. They're now held at the Cloisters in New York and it's a series of seven tapestries which dates to around about 1500. And in it, hunters set out to capture a unicorn. Now, the tapestries are mostly accurate in a botanical sense, but there is quite an interesting thing that there's lots of flowers and plants in there that are all blooming at the same time, whereas in reality they actually bloom at different times of the year. So it essentially creates this really lush and abundant paradise for the unicorn to move through. Now, in one of the tapestries, I think it's the second one, a snake has actually cursed the water of the forest. So the unicorn comes along and uses its magical powers to essentially cleanse the water and remove the serpent's venom so that everything can then drink from the water again. So by making the water safe, the unicorn then comes to represent Christ. Now, the tapestries are also known as the hunt of the unicorn. And in the early Christian era, people actually believed the unicorn to be a ferocious beast in part thanks to Tessias' descriptions of the unicorn's ferocity. 
and hunters couldn't capture a unicorn, he could only be tamed by a virgin maiden. And this is where we come back to that concept of being associated with Artemis. Now, what people believed you would do if you wanted to capture a unicorn is you would get a virgin maiden and she would then just sit quietly in the forest until the unicorn found her. And in her presence, the beast would become tame and even lay its head in her lap. I'm going to assume it was careful where it put its horn at that point because it is apparently three foot long. But there we go. Now, at this point, the hunters could capture or kill the unicorn. And it should be pointed out that in the unicorn tapestries, the maiden actually looks away at this particularly gory moment because it is depicted in all its, its goriness as if she's actually unwilling to acknowledge her role in its death. Now, these legends tie together these virginal girls and unicorns with some legends claiming that the unicorn could catch this specific scent that only virgins gave off. And then others actually overlaid a sexual element onto the scene with the unicorn even suckling from the maiden. And obviously, as you can probably gather, Freud stuck his oar in and he decided that it was all very phallic because of the length of the horn of this unicorn. What exactly does the unicorn therefore represent? Well, in these legends where you've got these virginal maidens and the unicorns, the unicorn becomes associated with purity. And this is then added to their mysterious untamed allure. Now, their ferocity in fighting, which is depicted in the unicorn tapestries as this unicorn fights off these hounds, does then become its strength and power. And the purity of the unicorn is why rulers often adopted them as a symbol. And this was a way of sort of showing their citizens that they were providing them with a safe and happy existence. And there is a unicorn on Florence's Neptune fountain, which helps to indicate that the water in the fountain is both safe and pure to drink. There's also something of the outsider about the unicorn and Paul Clayton Lee notes that its religious history goes back to the time of the Great Flood when Talmudic interpreters say the beast was too large to fit into Noah's Ark and so had to be towed along by a rope tied to its horn. This does obviously then say well it can't have only been the size of a goat's kid then and it then makes you think well exactly how big was the unicorn if it couldn't even fit in Noah's Ark. But the unicorn does appear elsewhere in the Bible. In a one particular tale which is related by Sky Alexander, Adam named the unicorn before any other animal. And then when he and Eve left the Garden of Eden, the unicorn went with them and it was the only animal to do so. So here the unicorn then adds loyalty to its list of virtues. And unlike Adam and Eve, the unicorn could still return to the garden every century and then eat the vegetation and drink the water to renew its strength. And all of this is very interesting, but perhaps its greatest quality was the magical properties of its horn. Now, people believe that the horn could purify liquids, which goes back to that tapestry where it's purifying the water in the forest. And the purified liquid could cure anyone who'd been poisoned. Some people in the medieval era actually thought you could detect poison with a unicorn horn. So I guess between that and a griffin's egg, you're probably doing quite well. Now, scholars also believe that this magical liquid made with unicorn horn could actually cure epilepsy, which was a condition that Joan L. Casador of Aragon suffered from. And this particular king loved hunting, but he was also really interested in things like astrology and alchemy. And he was desperate to own a unicorn's horn. And scholars have indicated his interest in possessing a horn as being somewhat symptomatic of his flightiness as a monarch. But at the same time, Michael A. Ryan explains that it also shows an attempt to exercise his authority because he was completely willing to throw the might of the state behind this desire to own a unicorn horn. And let's be honest, in the medieval era, the fantastical monstrous didn't really seem quite as far away as it does now. But when you think about it, his epilepsy would mean that his quest for the horn doesn't actually seem quite so outlandish, particularly if it's supposed to cure epilepsy. And the Count of Armagnac actually sent a piece of unicorn horn 
to Joan, or at least claimed it was unicorn horn. So what he did was he then poisoned two dogs and touched one of them with the horn. And according to reports, the dog that wasn't touched with the horn died, while the one that was touched with the horn lived. And Joan then allegedly went on to cure subjects who'd been poisoned. And he did also, like, send bits of unicorn horn to other people as well. So there's this peculiar trade going on in the Middle Ages of people sending these bits of horn to each other, saying that they're from unicorns. And to be honest, even Nicholas Culpepper advocated for the medicinal powers of unicorn horn. And he claimed that it would provoke urine, restore vitality, and even help bring about a birth. Now, Carolyn Turgeon, who notes all of this, also points out that the Worshipful Society of Apothecaries, which was founded in 1617, features two unicorns on its crest. And surprisingly, many apothecaries actually sold what they claimed was powdered unicorn horn. And let's be honest, it clearly wasn't. Now, some horns did come from narwhals, but others may have come from other antlered animals, such as the oryx. But it wasn't just the horn that apparently had healing properties. Hildegard of Bingen also believed that you could mix unicorn liver with egg yolks to cure leprosy, unless God didn't want the leper to be cured, so that's one hell of a get-out-of-jail-free card if you decide, hang on, this leper hasn't been cured by my unicorn liver. Well, God clearly didn't want him to be. It's fascinating the way that works. But Hildegard also believed that you could wear a belt of unicorn hide, which would save yourself from pestilence. So who knows what animals were used as stand-ins for their liver and hide? So this does bring us to the big question. Did unicorns actually exist? And let's be honest, when you think about a lot of the mythological creatures, the unicorn kind of is, in a lot of ways, I think the most likely to have actually been based on a real animal. It is essentially a horse, which we do know exists, with a horn which we do know exist. So it's not necessarily that outlandish to put the two together. And an article on beliefnet.com actually explains you can find the word unicorn in the King James Version of the Bible nine times. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that the unicorn actually exists, and this is why. Because later translations actually refer instead to a wild ox, because nobody really knows what the original Hebrew word actually referred to. Some people thought it was a wild ox or an auroch, and Matt Simon suggests again the oryx, which would make sense since people sold their antlers as unicorn horns. But if you think about the wild ox or the oryx, both of which I think are extinct now, the Greeks had never seen them. So they then translated this Hebrew term to monokeros, or one-horned, and then that then became unicornis in the Latin translation of the Bible. So by the time we then get to the King James Version, which let's be honest, there are other things in there which aren't necessarily correct, the translators just made up the word unicorn, and apparently they also made up the word baptism. Now, following this line of thinking, it means that unicorns really did exist, just not as we think of them, because it all came down to this mistranslation. Now, some wonder if the unicorn did once actually exist, but was then hunted to extinction for its horn. And let's be honest, humans have hunted other species to extinction, so it is possible. But Benjamin Radford notes that it was the exploration of the globe during the Enlightenment which led to a waning belief in unicorns. Because after all, if you keep visiting new countries and still don't find one, you are going to start doubting its existence eventually. But there is another explanation. Tiffany Sharples relates the case of a one-horned deer in Florence in 2008, and it was actually nicknamed Unicorn. And here, a genetic mutation caused the deer's single antler. So could animals with similar abnormalities have added to the unicorn legend over the centuries? 
Nowadays, they're beloved by the spiritual and new age communities, with some practitioners providing meditations to help you contact unicorn spirit guides, while others believe that unicorns exist on a different plane and we just can't see them because we don't vibrate in the same way that they do. So when we're pure enough and we believe hard enough, we'll see them again. So I want to know, what do you think? Are unicorns extinct animals or are they purely mythological and never actually existed in any tangible sense as we know them? Do feel free to let me know because I do always like to discuss the contents of these episodes with people to see what other people think and how other people view the topics because that's always quite cool. So anyway, I hope you enjoyed that. Next week, we're going to be having a look at a little bit more of a grab bag because I've decided rather than trying to find plenty of stuff about one particular creature, we're going to have a look at a few. So we're going to kind of round it out with like a little bit of a zoological trek through some mythological creatures like the manticore and the chimera. And I dare say I'll probably pop the phoenix in there as well because somebody did ask for the phoenix, but there's not really a huge amount about them that would be, you know, enough to sustain a whole episode. But I'll pop them in there instead. And then we'll go on to autumnal and spooky things in October. So that's all I really need to pass on. Remember, I am doing my talk on spiritualism tonight. So if you're listening to this on September the 19th, on Saturday, the day this goes out, I am doing a talk at 8pm British time with the Folklore Podcast about spiritualism, talking to the dead, spirit photography, all that kind of weird and wonderful stuff. So if you are interested in kind of seances and the supernatural and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle as well, then please do feel free to grab a ticket for that as well. I will put the link in the show notes below so you can you can come and grab one if you like. If you're listening to this after the September the 19th, it is still available to buy as a replay, so that's cool. So in other words, I hope you have a marvellous week ahead, whatever it is that you're doing. I hope that you all stay safe and well. And basically, I'll see you next week. So until then, cheerio. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. If you did, feel free to subscribe using whichever podcast app it is that you prefer. If you do use iTunes, if you could leave me a review, that would be fab. Basically, it just means iTunes are more likely to recommend this to other people. And if you're interested in more folklore, please feel free to swing by my blog, which is www.icsedgwick.com. And that's Sedgwick spelled S-E-D-G-W-I-C-K. And you can find all of the links, images and other bits and pieces that hopefully you enjoy. So have an absolutely fab week ahead and I'll see you soon. Cheerio.